Welcome to Significance Breed Success. My name is Daniel Pewter. Today I'm here with a human who's gone through some major challenges. Jeffrey Deskovich is a rock star in his life with impacting, serving, has a purposeful mission to be able to create, uh, um, you know, uh, freedom. Yes. I love it. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for having me. So you were in jail for 16 years? I was, uh, yes, I was in prison for 16 years for a murder and rape which I did not commit. And what's crazy is you were telling me a story earlier. I want to hear a little bit about this. But today you're a lawyer mm -hmm. and you have a nonprofit. You support other uh, humans who were wrongfully convicted. And I find that there's a lot of challenges in the situation. For instance, DAs in cities um, are pressured per se to get reelected um, based upon their numbers. Yes. And so they push the assistant DAs. Assistant DAs push law enforcement. And in your case, the law enforcement um, did some things that were challenging and that were maybe unethical um, that then landed you in prison. But on the flip side, the guy that should have been in prison then uh, went out and killed somebody else. That's correct. And so I find it just doesn't hurt you as a human and your family, but it also now has taken another life. Right. Exactly right. Sure. So um, in terms of the unethical uh, behavior, so the police, uh, they drove me on a school day. They drove me uh, out of county to the neighboring county, like 40 minutes away, which means I can't lay, leave on my own anymore. So let me take a half step back for about, so there's a murder and rape that happened in Peekskill. So it's a suburb. And uh, there hadn't been a murder there in like 20 years. So there was like a lot of pressure on the police to solve the crime. There was like town halls, safety tips, that kind of thing. So I... In the course of the police investigation, they interviewed a lot of students from the high school. Some of them told the police, hey, you might want to talk to Jeff. He doesn't quite fit in. So that's how I got on their radar. And the police also said that they thought I was overly upset at the victim having been murdered. And so that was like a reinforcing factor on, on their end. And then they got a psychological profile, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of what the perp would be like. And I matched that. So for about six weeks, they played this cat and mouse game with me. Half the time they talked to me like I'm a suspect. The other half the time they pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. It's like when I was a kid, before I was a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. So Jeff is the junior detective investigator helper. Theme alone my age, 16, was how they were able to fool me into thinking that I could you know, help them on a homicide investigation. Wow. So they drove me out of county 40 minutes away uh, three cops came there with me from Peekskill, but then the polygraph was, was the Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, so he's dressed as a civilian and never gave me my rights, and he pretended like he was not law enforcement. And so he attached me to this machine after giving me countless cups of coffee, and then he, he starts his third-degree tactics. So he raised my personal space, he raised his voice at me, kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he keeps this up for like six and a half to seven hours. Then at the end, he said, what do you mean? You didn't do it. You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to confirm it. Then the officer comes in the room who had been pretending to be my friend. And he says, look, tell them what they want to hear. They're going to harm you. I can't hold them off any longer. Look, just tell them what they want to hear. We won't arrest you. He's going to go home afterwards. So based on that, I gave a coerced false confession. By the time it was said and done, I collapsed in the floor in the fetal position, crying uncontrollably. I was 16. Wow. That's crazy. At 16, I went to juvenile hall too. 
But right. I went for a weekend. Right. You went for 16 years. For 16 years. So, I mean, you can talk probably, I mean, we've been talking this morning over breakfast. What are the biggest challenges with the legal system in America? Because I think it's really good mm -hmm. compared to other countries. Yeah, of course. I would agree with that for sure. <laughs> 100%. I think it's great, per se, um, but I think there's some major challenges. Yes. I think, I, think the, I think there's systemic deficiencies that lead to wrongful convictions, and we need to have legislation aimed to address those systemic deficiencies. So there should be videotaping of interrogations from beginning to end, since coerced false confessions have been the cause of wrongful convictions in 25% of the cases. We need better identification procedures. Need a better system of public defense. So I think there should be an even playing field in terms of manpower and money between the public defender's office and the prosecutor's office. We should have a limitation on caseload. It's not unusual for a hundred people to be represented by one public defender at the same time. Uh, prosecution has almost unlimited resources in terms of experts and investigate, investigatory ability, and I think that both sides should have that. We have to address prosecutorial misconduct. So having an oversight board on, on for prosecutors, and I think criminalizing clear-cut intentional uh, misconduct definitely should be should be um, a change that's uh, that's made. So I think that with those deficiencies, we need legislation to address that. And there's some pushback in law enforcement and district attorney's office. They want to keep the system as it is, and as long as that happens, that will uh, can thing, the stage is still set now. For wrongful convictions to happen just as easily as it as it did. I mean, for me, I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole. I got blocked from getting further DNA testing several times. I ultimately was exonerated, um, Daniel, by further DNA testing through the data bank, which not only have reaffirmed my innocence because the, the DNA didn't match me when I was before I was convicted, but the database was created, and then I was excluded, and the real criminal was identified. And he had killed a second victim just three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. So really what happened to me cost another person their life. So wrongful conviction is definitely a public uh, safety issue. It's huge public safety. So what do you think we can do? One other thing you were talking about, one thing was um, videotaping. Yes. So what's your thought? Let's start with the videotaping. I, mm -hmm. I think that's a huge point. Yep. Um, it's very accurate. You can also see body language, facial expressions, unlike just an audio tape. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I, I advocate for, uh, strongly for videotaping, uh, beginning to end, no starting and starting, the, no starting and stopping the tape. So we can have a complete, accurate record of who said what, when, what context. It, you can look at the body language as you're saying, but it also would prevent uh, police officers from leaving details out of their testimony it makes better evidence. So if you're a police officer and defendant falsely accuses you of coercing them, well, the tape is, the tape is right there. If the suspect says, no, I didn't have guilty knowledge. You gave me all the details. I just gave it back to you, I regurgitated it. Well, no, the tape just says that's not what happened. It can eliminate a lot of unnecessary pretrial litig uh, litigation. But it also protects innocent people because you can see if details were given. You can catch threats and coercion and false promises. So I look at it as a win-win as a scenario. So, and by the way, false, coerced false confessions are the cause of wrongful convictions in 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. Hmm. And I want to add that particularly vulnerable populations are people with mental health issues and uh, youth. Wow. So 
I think that some of the cameras coming in today, mm-hmm. um, I think they're great to be able to protect law enforcement. Me sure. as Debbie Sheriff, my sheriff always has a camera on mm-hmm. uh, when I'm in town. And it's great because our, our car camera's on too. Yes. I believe if you do the right thing to the best of your ability, you're, you're protected better if you have um, you know, the, the camera. The other side of it is, is, I was talking to a guy yesterday in Liberty City, he did a semination house and a, a, uh, a bunch of training with law enforcement at the Miami PD, and he, he didn't understand, like somebody pulls out their cell phone from behind their back, and you think it's a gun at nighttime, you're going to shoot, or I'm going to sure, shoot. Sure, of course. So anybody would, like, yes. in their right mind, because they want to protect themselves and go home. So I find that there's a lot of challenges, too, with, um, you know, different points of view, different perspectives, nighttime, daytime, stuff like that. But I think that people that specifically try to coerce, um, you know, it doesn't, what I told you about the drugs. Yes. We're doing a lot of prevention-based stuff. So if I add value to communities and the drug usage goes down with our kids, then because they become more purposeful and vision-driven, then it doesn't look good necessarily for law enforcement because then they're not taking the drugs or arresting or their arrests are down. So it's interesting to look at that. And if a police chief um, reports to a mayor and a sheriff reports to the community and is elected, he's got to show stats every year. And if his stats are down, people then question, are you doing your job? So it's a challenge to really create um, results. Same thing with DA, they gotta get reelected. So right. if their stats are down because their arrests, their arrests are down or their conviction rates. So how do we change that system? I think, I think putting the emphasis on conviction rate and, and the number of arrests is, is, the wrong, is the wrong approach. I mean, it's always better to prevent crimes from happening than solving them after the fact. So I think that we have to change the culture and mindset, not just amongst law enforcement and, and district attorneys, but also amongst the community that, you know, ab- about that. And I, I think secondly, um, keep, keeping in mind that, I mean, what, what good is it if you're making an arrest, if you're going about it in an ethical way, if you're breaking laws in the course of it, if you're getting innocent people? I mean, I'd like to believe that nobody goes into law enforcement or goes into the prosecution purposely because they want to just get the wrong person, right? Mm-hmm. So, but when you get swept up into this emphasis on stats, you get away from the original reason why you presumably entered the profession. And really, and it winds up damaging community relations. For sure. Definitely in some of the communities I've, I've worked in, the, the kids do, they call it uh, snitching. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, there's a difference between snitching, which is, and I was told this by a cop one day, he goes, snitching is when you do the crime with somebody else and then you snitch them out because mm-hmm. you got caught and they didn't. And the other side is protecting. Right. It's protecting your community. If, you're, if you want to have an amazing life and a great community, don't do the, the stuff that's going to get you in trouble long term. Yeah, of course. Plus, I mean, honestly, I mean, look, even if someone burglars, if they rob, they, they, they assault, God forbid, they, they kill, they rape, they do arson. I, I don't want that person walking around. They should be arrested. They should be punished and they should also be rehabilitated. So discouraging people who have legit information about a crime to come forward by putting that label of snitching on it. To me, that's a totally wrong uh, approach. I mean, we want to have all the criminals living un- unrehabilitated, living amongst us, that's like anarchy. That's the wild, wild west. That's not safe. So if you're DA. Yes. 
because this thing, it starts with a DA, right? Yes, really, it does. really saying, "Hey, guys, here's how we're going to function as a as a unit per yep. se. Yep. How we're gonna how we're going to punish bad people, or mm-hmm. here's how we're gonna you know change laws or shift what we're gonna do where." What would you do? What are the couple of key things? Yeah. So first of all, I would I would focus that you know our objective is to do justice, which means yeah, convicting guilty people, but also dismissing against innocent people. So that's the focus, not conviction rate. Mm-hmm. I would emphasize we're going to have a step back approach, scrutinize every case brought to you, look for the holes so we can prevent injustices on the front end. Let's have a real conviction review unit. Let's proactively go and find the wrongful conviction cases. Let's treat public. Uh, real, real quick, let me ask sure. you about that. Yes. Conviction review, uh, unit. review unit. There's a unit within the district attorney's office, and it's staffed, and it's a budget, and it, it's prosecutors and investigators, and they're proactively investigating potential wrongful conviction cases with the view of correcting them if they discover any of them. Has that ever been done? Yes, it has. So in Dallas, there was Craig Watkins. More than 40 people were exonerated. In Brooklyn, when Ken Thompson was alive, when he was a DA, he had a unit, and 23 people were exonerated in two and a half years. So when you have a legit unit, the results can be breathtaking. So, and this unit goes and works with the other DAs, looks at their cases, looks at past cases too? They look at past cases, yes. Wow. Yeah, the review unit looks only is looking at past cases. Okay. That's why it's called conviction review unit. So they're gonna look at past cases. So they can either look at cases on their own or when cases are brought to them by the defense lawyer or defendant, they can go back and re- reinvestigate the case. Wow. You know, this is screening processes, protocols, but yeah, it, it can be done. But I think also other things that I would do would be, uh, if I was a DA, uh, drug usage as a public health problem. Uh, we would divert, we would, because uh, really you need to send people to rehab and get treatment. That's what's going to help. Not to jail. For Not like to jail years, for right? 20 years. Right, exactly. Okay. Uh, diversion of uh, nonviolent offenders from incarceration. Not everything. J- prison, jail, incarceration is not the answer for everything. I think community service, I think job training, job placement, other rehabilitative programs can be appropriate in nonviolent situations. I think we would stop over-sentencing people, even in violent situations. Like if I was a DA, everyone would be presumed to get the sentence minimum, unless there's something that justifies making it more. And at that point, as a DA, let me hear your arguments. Why should it be? So that would be another, uh, that would be another aspect of it. And lastly, and this really ties back to good uh, relations uh, to the community. You know, there's nothing that's more disconcerting to the community, I believe, when uh, law enforcement is caught on tape when it's an unjustifiable, deadly police force. I mean, everything's caught on tape and like nothing happens. You know, not prosecuted, you know, suddenly they can't get a conviction anymore. You know, that, that shouldn't be. If it's a legit shoot, it's a legit shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I could never be a cop because that's such a dangerous thing. Your life's on the line, a lot of respect for them. At the same time, when it's an unjustifiable, deadly police shooting, that has to be prosecuted. And the same way that we get huge demonstrations in the street by law enforcement when law enforcement's killed, and that should be big demonstrations, it should be, that's horrendous. Where is everybody at when there's an unjustifiable deadly shoot and it's all on camera? Where's it at? Is it not important enough? And I think that that approach is so damaging. I'd love to see that to be repaired and I would encourage that if I was a DA. So I love what you're saying about serving the community. So 
putting people in jail for their max is crazy to me. Right. I mean, not necessarily. Some people need to Some get for their max, do. right? But as a general rule, doing that all the time as a general order of the day is excessive. So what do you think about DAs offering deals where, what majority would you say of the conviction rates are with a deal versus trial? Oh, the, the uh, deal is 97, 98%. And trial rate would be two to 3%. So, so it's pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. That somebody would get offered, let's say, oh, we're gonna offer you 30 years. Hmm. And if you take our deal now, we're gonna, we're, you know, cause they can offer the max, right? Mm -hmm. If you take your deal, we'll give you five and maybe five probation. Yeah, imagine that. So you're the defendant and you're facing 30 years if you go to trial and you lose versus five years in a, in, a, in, a, in a deal. And you already know on top of that, like I've got a public defender, they're underfunded. How much time are they really gonna have for my, for my case? And some of them, not all of them, but a good amount of the public defenders, they're bottom of the barrel anyway, and they're overworked. Most people are gonna take, the, take a deal and go. And as a result of that, there definitely are uh, people who are innocent who are pleading guilty. There was a judge that uh, estimated that he thought that 10% of the cases that were pled out were that it was innocent people taking guilty pleas. So what would you think if everybody today just started going to trial? What would happen to the system? Oh, it would, come, it would screech to a halt. There's no doubt. The whole system, right? The whole system. Even if like 50% were to say, I'll go. I'll take Even if 50% said, I'll go to trial. Yeah, the, yes, there's not enough resources there. The system would come to a grinding halt. That'd be pretty interesting, right? It really would be. I think that, I, you know, honestly, I almost wish that that, I, I do wish it would happen because I think that way we would put, as a country, we would put more resources in, in, into the justice system that way. So you talked about a hundred, you know, a public defender having a hundred cases. Yes. I think that's personally insane. Yes. Because there's way too many cases to actually serve the humans that they're serving. You can't serve a hundred cases yourself, right? Right. So what do you think a good number is? Uh, 25, 20, Yeah, maybe 30. that. Well, maybe 20, 25. I mean, it's hard to say. I've never, to really, I've never like put a lot of thought into like what the right number actually would be. Because okay. there's a lot of investigation and preparation that needs to go into each case before you can really properly advise your client to take to take a deal. You have to know what the evidence is against them. You have to assess what potential defenses there are. You know, that's um, it, it, there's a lot to there's a lot to do. Okay. So where in the future of America will the legal system be? Because we have a great legal system. Mm -hmm. We do. I believe it can be greater, obviously. Sure, of course. And it can add more value. Yes. And I think one of the biggest challenges that I see is that our kids today um, that are getting arrested majority of the time are in neighborhoods with more violence, right. more challenges, more poverty, more foster care, more, you know, less, less family yes. uh, per se around, maybe more family in prison. Like, so there's a lot more challenges. Mm -hmm. Where can we go with this? Because I know we can make this a better system to serve, you know, the next generation. I think that diversion of at-risk youth from incarceration, I think uh, mass incarceration reduction 
is 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 another is another trend. Uh, conviction review units are starting to pop up places. I think uh, pass having legislation passed uh, that mandates best practices to ad to address those deficiencies that lead to wrongful conviction. But there's a lot of other criminal justice issues also out there that that we're going towards where there are bills in different legislatures. Things like uh, addressing solitary confinement and parole violations for like technical things. People going back for like a year or two years because they came in 10 minutes late on their curfew. Can we talk about that real quick? Of course. I really like that. So somebody is on parole. Or, yes, or, 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 parole or probation. Or probation right? Either one. Mm -hmm. And they they violate in some little way. Yes. Not maybe drug usage again, no. but they're just late for a job. Maybe they lose a job. Maybe they can't get a job right off the bat. Maybe, maybe they changed addresses, didn't inform. They had got changed address. Or maybe the information didn't get put into the system. It got lost. So maybe it wasn't even them. Right. Whatever it was. Um, they then violate, which means they get a pickup order because mm -hmm. they get a warrant, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And from there, then they get arrested and taken back in for potentially the full sentence or partial of the mm -hmm. sentence. Yes. So what should we do? What can we do about that? Yeah, I think I think that we should not be reincarcerating people for technical violations. I think things like community, community service or taking into account why did the technical violation happen? You know, is there some other program that can be done? Something short of short of uh, incarceration. If you stop, stop and think for a minute, just from like a tax perspective for a minute. <laughs> look, so we got to look at all aspects Huge. of it, right? Sure, of course. So I, I remember some years ago, I mean, the number's gone up since then, but a few years ago, I, I remember there was like $65,000 a year to incarcerate someone, and that varies from state to state. This is an old New York stat a few years ago. But imagine having somebody in for two years on, on a parole uh, violation, $130,000 because of a technical violation that we're talking about. How does that serve us as a, as a, as a society? I mean, I'd rather see the money go into other social programs you know and and that's a, that's somebody that's going in there that's not necessarily real bit re rehabilitating their life mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. not making impact for their wrongdoings right that's not um, you know maybe growing right and so $130,000 for us to pay mm -hmm. is insane yeah. kids in Florida what I heard was about $100,000 per kid per year mm -hmm. That doesn't include court fees. That doesn't right. include you know judges, DAs. Mm -hmm. That doesn't include anything else. So it can be it can be really expensive. I heard the highest in New York for a kid was around two hundred. Wow. Per year. So I don't know how accurate that is, but mm -hmm. you know I That's look so. at stats and mm -hmm. you know, who knows where these things come from in the beginning. So okay, so so I like the idea about people giving back, mm -hmm. and and I think it does two things. So if somebody goes and you know gives back at a you know clean up or a community event or maybe even serves at a nonprofit for a race or 5k race and you know hands out water like whatever that is yeah maybe mentor somebody you know you know you're going to work at this at risk place and you're going to explain to people what your story is and why they shouldn't continue so that they don't wind up with uh, like you Huge. stuff like that and Huge. they potentially build themselves into a job yes. where they can go speak professionally they yes. can build relationships they can like I talk to my kids all the time I'm like where would you go if you want to meet rich people? And they're like, the club, you know, like, not the club, like a golf course, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a clubhouse, like whatever it is, they're, they're thinking of rich places to go. Because mm. a lot of my kids are not wealthy. Of course. And so I said, yeah, how about charity events? Right. You guys can sign up for free to volunteer at any 5K race or any charity event. Would love to have some kids show up nicely dressed, come to help out. 
And you'll meet people that want to give money and their time to impact a cause. So they're purpose-driven people, usually, Mm -hmm. that have extra money and extra time. And they're like, oh, wow, that's so easy. I'm like, I'm like, now go on the Google, go on the thing called G-O-O-G-L-E and dot com and you can go type in 5K race, local race, local nonprofit. Like they always are looking for people. And what find what's interesting to me is people just show up for one day. Mm. But I'm like, no, go serve the next one. Go serve the next one. Like build in a reputation to 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 that you're a servant leader. Mm-hmm. They're going to give you opportunity long term. They're going to be like, hey, where do you work? Oh, you need a job? Oh, you got a resume? Like, people will offer you jobs. It's, mm-hmm. it's incredible on how fast you can build relationships. Right. So, it's 2020. Mm-hmm. Things are good. Yes. What's your next plan? You're speaking around the country. I'm speaking around the country. Yeah, I'm speaking around the country and... Police uh, academies. Police academies, yes, in New so Jersey. In New Jersey. Police, yeah, yeah, so yeah. You, you said On you want to do more of that. I right? want to do more of that for sure. And I want to, yes, I want to do more ethics and more hit more police academies. I want to do more speaking events around the country. I've done some internationally. I'd like to do additional on that. Continuing to do media interviews. I'm hoping to build my profile out even more mm-hmm. than what it is. So, so media... Uh, we are my organ, my nonprofit, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, which I uh, started. Uh, we are working on some change, legislative changes in New York, uh, California, Pennsylvania. We're looking to expand into a few other states as some funding comes in the door. Florida is uh, definitely going to be one of the places we expand into. And uh, we have freed seven people in six years, so uh, that we're in the same position I am. So that's you know very meaningful to me. That's yeah. where my passion and heart is. I know what it is to be in prison wrongfully. So I guess the short answer is I'm looking to exonerate some additional people, this time as a lawyer. That's why I went to law school and got the law degree. I want to change some laws. But look, four or five years from now, you know, I am thinking about uh, uh, making the transition uh, to, uh, to politics. I'd love to run for DA and implement these uh, changes that we're, that, that we're talking about. So you know, sometimes I feel like you know, I'm tired of trying to persuade people to do the right thing. I like to have my hands on a few of the levers of power to to be able to do the right thing directly, set as an example, and you know, cause national you know dialogue and inspire others to do the same thing I'm doing and even better me. Nice. I heard you're writing a book right now. I am. The book is 95% written, so I am looking for a literary agent. I'm looking for the right publishing house that can publish it, that can really sit me on a book tour, give me the shelf space, the marketing. When that happens. Um, um, when, when I get the right offer, I'm going to have that. But the projects I have, that's in the future, and I want to have a docu-series. But what's going on now, what I want to share with you as far as what I'm doing now, uh, so there is a short documentary called, uh, called Conviction, which has been entered into a number of um, documentary festivals. So that's going around. Nice. There, there's a virtual reality uh, virtual reality. Uh, product which is going to drop in the middle of March about my story. It's called Once Upon a Time in Peekskill. Wow. And and there is a sizzle reel for a docu-series that would um, provide services to exonerees, which I'm in the sizzle reel. So I'm hoping that some network will pick that up. So those things are uh, in, the, in the immediacy. Uh, I do own a, co-own a game. It's called Recharge Beyond the Bars Reentry Game. And it has icebreaker type questions which facilitate dialogue between formerly incarcerated people and others. When I came home, Daniel, it was very hard for me to talk to my family and other people because I knew that they nothing in their background would have prepared them to understand what I'm, you know, what it is to be on trial or to be in prison or to try to reintegrate. So I had a hard time to express that. On their end, 
what to say, what not to say, what to bring up, what not to bring up. So recharge comes in the middle and serves as an icebreaker uh, with, with those questions and it promotes dialogue. So those are things I'm doing now. The other things are down the line. But God, God willing, you know, the future is bright. I have a big impact to try to make. And uh, look, it's healing, it's cathartic. You know, I feel like this is my purpose in the world. That's how it makes sense of everything. Uh, I'm not an angry person because I, I believe my purpose in the world is to do this work. And if I'm gonna be angry or bitter, I'm gonna be the only loser in that. And I lost so much, why would I wanna lose the rest of my life? Yeah. You know, I wanna enjoy and make a difference. And so that's, in a nutshell, that's me. I love it. Where can people go to find you? So I have a website, uh, www.deskovic.org. That's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. You guys, I want to challenge you. If you are an organization, law enforcement, uh, you know, sheriffs, police department, bring out Jeffrey to do uh, a two-hour, a full-day Um, experience, training. Also that a a witness might be mistaken or that an informant is lying. Um, You know, there are patterns from amongst the cases that have ended in DNA exoneration. Mm -hmm. And I share all those patterns, you know, with with the audiences. Because look, we we need cops, we need prosecutors who are aware of these things, who uh, are adhering to the best practices so we can get the actual criminals, not innocent people. So I'd love to be able to share, you know, that information with them. This is not an anti-law enforcement uh, message by any means. This is all about accuracy and justice. Well, you add value to law enforcement. Yes. So that they don't get in lawsuits, so that they're not liable, because they know what to do that's legal and proper Mm -hmm. and just for not only them, their community, but for people that are, um, you know, doing a crime versus not doing a crime. Correct, sure. So, I mean, if they present back in the day with you, mm-hmm. if, if people that were in law enforcement presented false evidence and coerced you based upon no um, evidence, it's crazy to me. Um, I've heard of this. Uh, the department that I'm with is the most amazing department in the world. Mm-hmm. My sheriff, deputy sheriff, they're just loving humans that want to protect and, and, and uh, be... Um, you know, a role model for the community and, and people turn to them and love them. And when we go to dinners, um, my assistant sheriff, like people come up to him and say, thank you very much for what he's doing. Not just right. for, you know, enforcing the law, but also for impacting the community. Right. So it's a win-win. I think at the end of the day, I see that, you know, law enforcement has a very difficult job. A thousand percent, yes. I've been in it now for a year and it's not easy and I don't do it full time. I do it as a reserve, but um, I love to add value to people's lives. So I appreciate you. Sure, thank you. I appreciate you too. Thank Definitely. you for having me on your show. You got it. You guys, significance breeds success. I appreciate you guys. Check Jeffrey out on his website. We'll put it down below too, next to the video, and bring him out if if you could utilize him with in schools and colleges and organizations. He would love to do ethics training uh, and impact your community with how to grow and flourish definitely with challenges um, in the law enforcement or the conviction world, uh, jail world. Um, So you guys have an amazing week. Stay significant and add value to somebody around you. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.